0: Welcome to Counter Stories, a podcast by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner at Dendros Group and Executive Director of the Arts Us Center for the African Diaspora.
1: I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General for the Office of Attorney General for the State of Minnesota. And guess what, folks? Any and all comments I'm sharing with you today, my viewpoints are my own. They should not be attributed to the Office of the Attorney General.
2: Thank you.
3: I'm Don Eubanks, associate professor at Metropolitan State University and cultural consultant.
2: I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group.
0: And if you're listening to us right now, we're back. After leaving and changing our relationship with Minnesota Public Radio, we are now an independent podcast that's going to continue to provide deep conversations from friends from multiple uh communities of color on everyday issues. I know if you are like me, you have been all over the news, all over All the things that are happening in society right now. And so it's good to just have a space to be able to compare notes, to share what's happening in different communities. So today, we're going to start talking about some of the compound effects that all these things that are happening to us day in and day out have in our various communities. So thanks for coming in and checking in. This is Counter Stories. So when we talk about the compound effect, um, there's a saying, and Luz, you said it several podcasts ago about... Um, when the society catches a cold, people of color catch the flu. And this idea that things that happen out there in the world have a compound effect for communities who've been marginalized, um, who have, um, because of racialized patterns, have different outcomes for health, different ho- outcomes for housing, and all of these things. So I want to start all the way to one compounding effect is, and that is, we just had an election, and uh, Joe Biden was elected the um, 46th president of the united states and don i think you were watching the same cnn news story that i was all of a sudden everybody starts talking about who was voting from what different population and i heard african-american i heard white i heard all these different categories but when it got time to talk about native peoples we saw a line a word that said something else (laughs) What came up for you when you saw that something
3: else oh man, it was absolutely incredible i'm you know and 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 in, in previous counter stories i've I've mentioned that you know for for Native Americans our our total population in Minnesota mirrors i think the total population of Native Americans in the United States, and that's somewhere between one point six and one point eight percent of the total population and I've often talked about how you know. Because of that, you know, we fall within that margin of error. So when they do these these national polls or they take surveys, because our numbers fall within that margin of error, we very seldom show up on these statistical reports. So when they're breaking down and they're they're examining disparities that happen in, in various communities of color in the American Indian population, Our numbers don't show up, but in this case, CNN was covering, and I think they were. It it, they were they dialed in, I think, on the populations in Arizona, because Arizona was one of those states that was key, uh, a key win that ended up being a key win for Biden, and so this this the uh, statistics they were showing, they were breaking it down by communities of color, African American. Hispanic is the largest population in Arizona, and they broke it down in those various categories. And then 6%, they labeled something else. Well, every tribe in Arizona, 90% of those, over 90% of every tribe in Arizona voted for Biden, which helped him win that state. And for us to fall in that category, something else, of course, my media thing just blew up. Every Native American acquaintance I have in the United States started referring and, and started creating all these immediate memes and sayings about how we now identify as something else and, you know, what, as something else, what do we dress as or, you know, so... We the American Indian community, we can take something and make it humorous, but that's painful. I mean, and it just goes to show, and it just like we're saying, compounds the fact that we're already invisible. Um, and then to to have this chart come out and refer to us as something else was just adding insult to injury on top of that.
1: Don, when I saw that, I had a similar reaction, and I I felt this visceral reaction when I saw that, and I just thought, you know, here is just the most important stage of our electoral process, front and center, and it was 24-7 in terms of updates, and then for them to refer to an Indigenous people as something else was just so tone-deaf on it, and We know that to your point that the Navajo Nation in Arizona helped flip Arizona from a red state to a blue state. And we know that uh, anywhere from 60 to 90% rather voted as a whole Uh, and how critical it was, despite, as you said, you know, earlier with compounding factors, the fact that Navajo Nation became the highest infection rate above any other community just a few months earlier in this summer right and so you've got this incredible burden on our navajo nation and other indian country around the the united states and to still be able to come forward and engage in their civic duty despite all this hardship and then to see that on the news was just really disheartening.
0: You know, what's, what's, what comes up for me, you know, so we have yet again Native communities being <laughs> left out or, 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 you know, the term that, that Don, you've taught us about over and over again, statistically insignificant, keeps being used to justify leaving out the nuance of this particular story. I got to also think about when I was, you know, because of COVID, I took my family west um, just for a break um, into areas that I thought, and according to the map, didn't have a whole lot of cases, kid sanity, and all of that. And we had every intent to go to Wounded Knee and kind of teach my kids about that particular experience. And um, I ended up sitting in, in um, a town in South Dakota talking to some Native brothers who were like, yeah, they had to shut down the res. Because people were coming through, and these are folks who were not willing to wear masks, and folks were were demanding to come into the area and upset an already delicate space um, that that was having these compounding rates. Without any of the hospital, I mean, the, the 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 rate of hospital beds that had vent or with the rate of ventilators in Native communities, we already have a problem nationally. That gets compounded when we're talking about. Um, Native country. Um, and so these compounding things that start with a pattern that we all, all every day realize, but if we are not even thinking about them and reporting statistical data on who's voting, you know, we're doing the same pattern when it comes to not thinking about these communities in terms of our overall COVID plan. Again, there's this compounding of, of issues when we ignore uh, the experience of Native peoples.
2: I think it's being talked about more now than it has been in the past. I know I'm hearing it more. Um, An organization I work with, the largest federally qualified community health center in Minnesota, has actually removed chief from the executive titles. We've also talked about the problem of indigenous peoples being put into this other, this uh, small portion of the population, therefore they're statistically insignificant, Um, You know, that's a problem. And how can organizations locally address that in the way that they do their reporting in the way that in the way that they do their research? I mean, we're seeing this happen now. Six years after we started talking about it here on Counter Stories, but local organizations, local initiatives, local movements can can start to bring that change. And it gives me hope. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Right. I'm feeling hopeful these days.
1: And if you think about how disproportionately COVID-19 is impacting our communities of color, our Black community, and our Indigenous community, we, for instance, for Indigenous community, and this would have been from May through August 31st of 2020, U.S. population is 0.8%, but the percentage of COVID deaths, so this is deaths, it doesn't include folks who have been infected and recovered, is almost twice the amount. It's almost double the amount of the population at 1.3%. And similarly speaking for Latinx population, it's 6% higher than the death, COVID deaths percentage for that period is 6% higher than the average Latinx population in our country. Mm. Our black population, similarly speaking, again, 6% higher uh, percentage of COVID deaths in the black community. Interestingly enough, in the Asian community, we see a different outcome is 2% lower. The COVID deaths are 2% lower than the total population percentage rate for Asians in our country. So that that is really interesting. That's the only population for that period of time that actually showed a decrease um, in terms of BIPOC. Uh, of course, the white population is also less. 61% of the U.S. population is uh, white, but only 51% of the COVID deaths are attributed to white um, folks passing away from it as well. So we're just really interesting to see how these patterns continue to emerge.
0: One of my wonderings in that, when we talk about this compounding effect for communities of color, um, we think about where resources distributed. So just on the testing alone, um, I'm walking into a space where I'm, I'm telling my friends, me and my kids keep getting tested. Like we just... If there's any wonder or concern, we go to Roy Wilkins Auditorium and get the test whether you have health insurance or not, you can roll up in there, get tested and have the test back to you within 24 to 72 hours. And it's a real slick setup where you you take your phone and you you scan everything with your phone, following the the web page that they send you to. And so it's a real kind of self-automated thing and now they even have home delivery kits. One of the things that I was running into is a whole lot of my friends who don't work in a space where they control their schedules um, and they're working for an office and have to be, quote unquote, tracked in all of their time, they're not getting the freedom to go and test in the same way. Like they don't they don't get to just go like, you know what, let's go and make that plan. The home test will help. But they're not getting the same access that I'm finding in the same way with other folks who are more represented and have a freer schedule, um, even representing the folks who get to work from home. Even that question alone, the folks who get to work from home in my universe do not look like me overall. Um, and that, I think that tracks with some of the data we have about who has the ability to work from home versus who has to be there. Um, I'll also add in their uh, first responders, right? The The essential employees. We are people of color are highly overrepresented in the populations who are who it is considered essential and have to risk exposure more than anybody. My own brother works at Amazon where there was a whole lot of issues going on. And he has um, uh, um, uh, a uh, medically compromised uh, situation in the house where where he's got somebody who's, who's part of the vulnerable population. And so there's a compound effect even in our ability to even address the virus in itself
1: we certainly have the workplace issues that you've noted and disproportionately having bipoc folks in the front line and essential services industries that require them to be on site and not have the luxury of working from home we also have public transportation issues i mean they're disparately speaking again bipoc folks without reliable transportation are seeking then transportation on public transportation and exposing themselves arguably then in those crowded situations and instances as well.
2: When such a large part of this population is affected by this virus in such um, an unfair and Unproportionate way, and then there's this other population that finds it to be a game. I mean, where's the humanity, you know? And, and lose, you were giving us all that great information with the statistics, and y- you know, it's not what I see, right? It's not what I see when I'm in community, it's not what I see um, going on in the API community. I mean, it hits hard, you know, especially when we're losing elders, um, especially when there's so much misinformation that folks don't even know who to believe anymore, it's extremely difficult and, and saddens me a lot.
0: Lee, you, you bring up an excellent point. If we take the statistics that Lou's put forward and our representation in the cases and the deaths, that means that people of color are in greater proximity to the negative outcomes of COVID than other populations which means we're the ones that are getting the stories. We're the ones that are having to live through. A member of my own church community just died of COVID in a nursing facility. So so we 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 have proximity in ways that make us act differently. And the reason that this is sticking out for me is I was recently in a situation where I had my family together. we were about to get into an elevator um, and this lady jumps into the elevator and we kind of are like, should we do this? We are short on time. Um, We had a bunch of stuff that couldn't go up the stairs and we chose not to necessarily wait. We had face shields, masks. We were all the way up. This lady had a mask because she was required to. But as soon as we got into the elevator, um, I made a comment you know, well, shoot, so much for social distancing for the one floor that we're about to go up. And her response was, well, we're all going to get it anyway, so really it doesn't really matter. And I'm sitting here going, it's very clear to me that none of your people have died uh, to this, and so you get to just cast it off. And it's, that's the compounding piece that that comes out for me when I hear what, what, you, what you brought up, Lee, and I think about the fact that we're, we're closer in proximity.
1: Anthony, to that point, I from the very start of COVID, I started a list on my phone of family and friends in my network who contracted COVID and lived or contracted COVID and passed away. And I keep that as a reminder to myself. Um, and I it really grounds me to look at that list. And when I look at that list as I do often. of folks on that list are BIPOC. Mm. That reflects that proximity that you speak of. It reflects who our networks are. It reflects the reality of our lives. Uh, And it reflects the compounding of the trauma and the stress that we're all feeling. Having family members contracted and pass away from it. Having family members who contracted struggle with it and are still on their healing journey with that as well. So we look at it and we think, there are plenty of people out there who have not yet experienced it in that proximity. We don't have that luxury. And to your point about people not observing distance, the few times that I do go out to the grocery store, it, it baffles me that people still will not adhere to that distance. And I find myself asking them to. I find myself pointing to decals on the floor and asking them, excuse me, can you adhere to the distance we're supposed to adhere to by standing on that decal? Repeatedly, I'll get like, oh, didn't know that. Or, oh, I didn't, I didn't notice that. And I'm just thinking, haven't we all been indoctrinated for the last eight months, going on nine months about this? Why is this so difficult to some people?
0: And it kills our ability to do what's called smart bubbling, right? We are, um, cases are up all across the nation. You no longer have the this sense that if as long as I keep my bubble, I do safe practices, I can just hop to the store real quick. I can just hop and do this thing here. And I don't have to, and, and it's a risk, but it's a calculated one that is going to leave it okay. And we could do the kind of safe distance bubbling pieces. We're coming into a holiday season where because we have not listened And the cases have gone up to where they are. We can't count on this one piece of reprieve, particularly for me in in black community, like this holiday is one where we come together and we have had to be so distant for so long. We were going to, we had a beautiful safe bubbling plan that is now shot um, to hell because the governor had to impose another restriction. I know Don, you're experiencing it right right now, aren't you? Our
3: daughter, you know, our daughter elected to go, to the University of Iowa, and 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 Iowa was one of the few higher institutions that didn't really put a lot of um, precautions in place when it came to COVID, and and uh and yet remarkably, in the you know she went down in August and and um she's remained COVID free. she um uh, but you know with uh, the holidays. Uh, a lot of the college and university students returned, so our daughter returned to uh, Minnesota. She got back in Friday. She she was tested again. She tested negative, um, but we had agreed that she would go stay with her her older brother and his fiance. So it it is such a stressful time because we were looking forward to getting together with our you know with our our, our kids and and um for for uh the holidays and but you know with this resurgence of of covid and the, even even with all the testing that's no guarantee that you go in and get tested on Wednesday and you get a negative result on Thursday which is you know Thanksgiving that you may have been in contact with someone on Monday and it doesn't show up till Thursday or Friday. I mean, you know, and so they're even with the tests. There's no guarantee. I'm dad, right? And so dad, mom, everyone's looking to us for direction, and I tend to be the one who is in the high risk category, and and so, you know, everyone kind of looks at me, and it tears me apart. Because and they don't, you know, it it. And not just me, but every family that has to deal with this has to make a decision on do they do they cross that unknown and allow family, close family within what would normally be their own small little bubble, come in and take the chance, or or you don't. And so I I think that we've decided that um, we're going to exchange food but we're going to all eat in our own separate households and then meet virtually. But he came up with that suggestion, right? And so he 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 sent that to us in the text saying that this would be the least stressful way for us to be together. It made me realize that they do understand the seriousness of this. But at the same time, it saddened me that, that um, my family and so many, you know, many other families in the United States... And throughout the world, to be honest, have to make these kind of decisions day in and day out. You know, for a long while, outstate Minnesota, their infection rates weren't very high. And I think that kind of bled into this kind of com- complacency that, you know, we've kind of touched on and talked about where people aren't always recognizing that six foot, you know, the social distancing. Um, you know, not always willing to wear a mask. I mean, I, I, you know, I still see plenty of people walking around without a mask. I don't go out that often. My, my excursion to the outside world, just to break the boredom from being in the house, is I'll hop in my car and take a short drive. I, I don't like it. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, does vac the vaccines come soon enough it will be interesting to see how this country decides who gets it i think that's going to be another compounding impact that uh that we may have to deal with you know even as we sit here and we talk about how how covid has disproportionately impacted communities of color um it, it right now in the state of minnesota every reservation their their numbers are just skyrocketing i mean uh, almost every day someone at malax is contracting COVID and or passing away. And so every reservation, every small rural community in Minnesota is dealing with this now. You know, I'm hoping that when these vaccines come out and when they actually prioritize who's going to get the vaccine, I'm hoping, I'm keeping my fingers crossed That as communities of color in the American Indian population, we don't see ourselves falling lower and lower and lower on that list, even though our deaths are improportionately in the other direction.
0: So let's go there. I was hoping somebody was going to bring this into the equation when we talk about compound effects, because I share your hope, Don. But what I'm seeing in folks in my community is great. We finally got the vaccine on the horizon. I'm not be the best to be the first one to take it. And all of a sudden, what comes back is the history that our medical community has with our communities of color in terms of whether or not we can trust. And that trust factor is also going to compound the issue of folks even going out and getting the vaccine.
3: You know, and, and that's a good point, Anthony, you know, because historically there are there are so many instances in both our communities, African-American and Native American, where medical procedures were done and uh, we done against our people without our consent sterilizations on both sides of the equation. Even the Latino population in California, you know, many women were sterilized in, in hospitalizations and not even being aware of it. Same thing happened in Native American, African American. And then you have the Tuskegee experiment where they purposely infected, and I forget the number of African American men with syphilis.
0: And then, you know, I, I mean... Let's talk about that, right? So Tuskegee experiment that you're describing, um, where they gave these men what they thought was helpful medicine, which was actually a placebo, and just let them, even though they could treat them, let them die and fester, so they could see what the what the disease did. And that kind of testing environment is sowing a whole lot of distrust, where folks are simultaneously happy that there's a vaccine, but completely distrustful about how the ex- vaccine will be implemented and saying that I'm not even going to try to go and get it because they're not going to give it to us anyway.
3: So, you know, I I, I think there's going to be various reasons across the board. And and so while there may be some folks who, who might be leery of getting that vaccine, I think for me, it's more of a concern on a uh, how that vaccine gets disseminated, and when it makes it to our community.
2: If the vaccine was offered in poor urban communities first, I personally would be very, very wary.
1: I share your concern, Halee, and I, what I want folks to understand is the distrust with the medical community and BIPOC communities is not limited to the historical references that Anthony and Don just referenced. At one point in the US, 32 states had eugenic sterilization laws on their books, resulting in more than 60,000 women being sterilized, disproportionately black and brown women. And even more recently, between the years of 2006 and 2010, nearly 150 incarcerated women in California prisons were sterilized. And then this year alone, 2020, You've got reports of women being sterilized, migrant women, um, and including having mass hysterectomies performed by um, the various detention centers that are contracting with ICE without their knowledge. So this, this forced sterilization has been perpetrated on black and brown women disproportionately certainly going back to the time when enslavement was in place, right, to the time mm-hmm. in memoriam to now. Uh, this is deep-seated in our communities, and folks need to really understand that and take heed. And to, lead to your point, I also remember seeing in late summer when there was more and more conversations from the medical community saying that these uh, COVID vaccines were on the brink of being formulated, there was talk about the first folks that should receive it would be folks in Africa. And I know my social media blew up with that, saying, here we go again. Why Why would you begin to target folks in Africa as if their lives are less than important than anyone else? Uh, these are, of course, underlying trust issues Against our government, that are I think well founded, given on the practices and patterns that have been engaged upon, without our knowledge, our community's knowledge, and our um, agreement for that.
3: Correct me if I'm wrong, and and, and this is you know what, you know what the with those statistics you just shared, lose is is this idea many Germans were convicted of war crimes in World War II. For doing those same things, um, medical experimentation while they were in a concentration camps against Jews and other other folks who found themselves in the unfortunate position of being in a a concentration camp in World War II, and we hear those horrors and we think of them as horrors, and those folks, uh, Germans were um, convicted of war crimes during World War II for for. Those same type of things, but here they can happen in the United States against us, and you barely hear a blurb about it. And I've always had a hard time reconciling how how this country can perpetrate these crimes against communities of color and the world remains silent When if it was happening in another country against populations, um, there would be an outcry. Do you understand
0: what I'm saying? Absolutely. That's that particular tension that creates the compound um, effect that comes to now something as simple as rolling out a vaccine for something that's killing us um, at disproportionate rates now is in question, right? Let alone... The things that we need to know from black folks taking the vaccine, from people, community, populations of color taking the vaccine. Like this isn't the end of the process. We've we've got something that has to happen because this is how we deal with pandemics. And we have to have some vaccines, some vaccines that 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 um, protect us from it. But we for folks of color, it's not just simple as that because we have to now also deal with your point, Don, this tension between what has happened historically, what is happening now, lose you, you mic dropped. And for our listeners that are here, as you listen to counter stories, you're going to hear things that you've never been learned about before and have to go look into much deeper. Now, I was completely unaware of the sterilizing practices that were still uh, happening in institutions and in, in, in the United States. That is still blowing my mind. But again, it takes what is a quote unquote normal or simple story and compounds it with so many other layers that you just don't think about if you are outside of this experience. You know, and as a
3: and then when you throw in the additional wrinkle, I mean, there's wrinkles all over the places. Right. So there's a holiday coming up Thursday. Right. There's national holiday that, you know, is coming up uh, Thanksgiving And but, you know, from from my perspective as a Native American, it's like, you know, what the hell do we have to be thankful for? They they've taken our land. They've taken our culture. They put us in boarding schools. They relegated us to reservations. They continue to, you know, were referred to as just recently last, you know, after the election as something else, 6 percent of something else. And yet this country goes through this charade called Thanksgiving where where the pilgrims sat down and they had this celebratory dinner <laughs> with the Indian. I mean, the whole thing is a charade. It, it, it's, it's part of that history that, you know, smooths over what actually happened in this country and makes it all right for white people to feel good about themselves. I'm just gonna go there, right? And so,
0: and let's talk about that, right? Let's let's I'm I'm gonna I'm keep going with your wrinkles. If you're gonna cause wrinkles and stuff, I mean, let's be unapologetic about these wrinkles. This is a holiday that traces its roots to 1863 not to the beginning of our nation. This isn't something that we practice all the way through. This is something that came about at a moment where we were so staunchly divided over something that history will, will, will say shouldn't have even been a question, whether or not you should enslave another person. And out of that, during that time, we have the birth of this sugarcoating of the genocide of Native peoples that we call Thanksgiving, for which we all have adopted as a season of quote unquote, giving thanks in the harvest if you want to take it that route. But our origins are what they are. So this doesn't even go back to the founding of the country, Don. It, it only goes back to 1863.
2: I find it hard to believe, and and maybe it's not so much I find it hard to believe, but I I wish this wasn't true, that there are adults in this country who still believe in this beautiful story that we were all sold. I'm sure there are people out there who believe that beautiful story that, you know, the white people saved these savages or, you know, that they had come to this beautiful peace agreement and they were going to live in harmony and so they broke bread. I'm sure there are people who believe in that. I just have a hard time believing that there are adults who were born and raised in this country who still believes that, who hasn't taken a, a moment to really critically think about the whole situation, who hasn't taken the time to try to even educate themselves a little bit, especially now.
0: All right, please. All right. I'm going to speak for me. In my upbringing, I have my own family and, and, and familial circles who grew up and hold to that and will tell you, why can't we just get back to this simple narrative that they were given? Shoot, I'm showing my kids the Addams Family Values movie the other day. And sure enough, they go to Camp um uh oh, what is it? It's it's Camp Chippewa, first and foremost, right? And the Adams Family, who are the outsiders in this get-along camp. I mean, there's one point where they try to socially fix the Adams Family kids and they put them in a room and show them Disney films. I mean, it is it is good learning. It gets at some stuff. But what did they do? Those Adams Family kids participate in this Thanksgiving play that's about this fictionalized version of this. Right. And turn around. And what do they do? They start burning white folks at the stake and take on this very stereotypes around Savage that um, that we ignore um, and don't talk about in the everyday space. and And even in trying to call attention to. The actual ridiculousness of the holiday and the way that they were portraying it used those took on those stereotypes to make the for the fun family, quote unquote, film. And I had to
2: figure out how to unwrap this from my kids' own psyches. But growing up, that's what we thought. That was the story we were told. That's what we were led to believe in school. And. My parents were always like, you know, education, education, education. Well, where do you get your education? You get it from school. And when you're young, you believe it. You believe the things that you're taught. And that's what we believe. That was the story we were told.
0: You know, black folks, we'll take something and flip it around and make it taste real good. And what we've done is take taken this experience and say, we're going to, yeah, I know all the reasons why you say we should do it. But it's a moment where everybody gets some time off of work and some time off of school to be able to get together. And we're going to use this time to give thanks for surviving another year in white supremacist America.
1: I think there's that tension. There's a tension with what we've been indoctrinated to to learn and to understand and identify and connect with with how we were indoctrinated in school. We've all heard that same story. That story was false and it was grossly inadequate. And grossly unjust to indigenous people and indigenous countries. And so it's that reconciling that dissonance in our minds that we have to unlearn it. And we have to unlearn it each other, but as a society and as our children as well. Like we have to be strong enough to say this is important enough in our lives that we are going to change this narrative. And I know in my circle, as this day comes on, I am saying to folks, look, I am spending a day of gratitude with my family. I am being able to live with them and share that moment virtually nonetheless. Uh, But I also am taking time to understand the atrocities that were perpetuated uh, against indigenous people with this holiday in particular, but since then as well, wrongdoings that, that are continually just being inflicted upon Indian country. Um there was one tweet that came across my feed that really helped me distill all this into a very succinct way. So I'm going to share it with you. And and the person tweeting was M Rodzi R-O-T-Z-I. And her words are for what it's worth Canceling our Thanksgiving celebrations to prevent the spread of COVID gives us a great opportunity to talk to our kids about how entering someone else's home to intentionally spread a deadly disease is foundational to the holiday in the first place. Which Ooh, is that, This is what happened. This is what really, really happened. This is the truth of what, how this holiday, quote unquote, came to be. Is these colonizers coming and discovering, quote, unquote, a country that did not need discovering because our indigenous families were here already and had been here for hundreds of years and brought with them a whole host of diseases that they introduced then from Europe onto our indigenous uh, lands and, and people started dying as a result of that. Um, So, I mean, that's what that that tweet alone really helped me distill it down to what I was feeling.
0: And so there it is. We have compounding factors for communities of color, whatever we talk about, whether we're talking about elections, whether we're talking about covid COVID, uh, cases and deaths, whether we're talking about covid, the vaccine itself, even the election. Things hit communities of color differently than it hits everywhere else. This is a good way to start talking about how we start the truth-telling process, right? You just asked us to tell the truth. So let's tell some truth. We got a Thanksgiving holiday coming up. And despite everything we just said, I'm pretty sure that everybody here is doing something to commemorate it. So, 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 so let's talk about that. For me and my family, we are doing what Don's son put out, and that is... Socially distantly, every household is staying in their own household unit. But we all decided who's going to make what dish. And we're going to safely, with masks and gloves, deliver our portions. I've got the turkey, so I smoke turkeys every year. So I'm going to deliver turkey portions to all the different households and pick up our household's kits. And then we're going to get online. Um, And to the point that we've raised here, we are going to have a conversation about why we're doing what we're doing and why it's not this facade story that we grew up with. That's what the Galloway household's doing. What's everybody else doing?
2: The reason why my family celebrates both Thanksgiving and Christmas is really because that's what you did. We got time off school, my dad got time off work, there are parties, you know, the first thing that happens when you get back to school or work, everybody says, What'd you do for Thanksgiving? or what'd you do for Christmas? We started to celebrate both Thanksgiving and Christmas because of that and eventually, you know, and eventually it, it really did turn into, um, you know, giving thanks for what we were thankful for. Um, but this year, everything has been so different, you know, with the political climate and with the murder of George Floyd and just with everything um, that's been going on. It's really allowed my family to open up a dialogue about these um issues that we haven't really had a chance to talk about. Um, Like this year when we celebrated July 4th, we did a toast to acknowledge that we were on indigenous lands that were stolen. And that was what we were celebrating. I mean, right, what a strange thing um, to be celebrating. It was just, of course, for us, another reason to have good food. Um, And that's what we've always done in the past. And this year, we really wanted to be intentional about that. This year for the Hmong New Year, um you know it had to be a very small gathering those who came and stayed um had to wear masks um you know for the most part folks came dropped off food picked up their eggs um got food to go home this thanksgiving we've decided that each of us are just going to do something small um at our houses um we've got a zoom set up Um, So for Thanksgiving, you know, we're going to stay separate and a couple of us will will likely just have a very small meal with my parents this year.
1: You know, we, similar to Heli, we didn't grow up really celebrating Thanksgiving in my home. Both of my parents were born and raised in Mexico, Mexico, and they came over as adults. Uh, My dad, at one point when he came over before they had children, had made a turkey for the first time because he had coworkers who had encouraged him and he got food poisoning (laughs) along with my mom. I think he tried it one time thereafter and the same thing happened. And after that, he decided they weren't gonna do turkey. So we would just have just Mexican food um, on Thanksgiving day and and not really make it a thing. Um, The first time I actually had turkey for thanksgiving was as an adult um and i wasn't really <laughs> in love with it uh i do have a friend who would smoke the turkey when was in law school then he did it right and and yes i, I really enjoyed that uh, <laughs> my husband was raised in the south and grew up uh, with dressing and mm-hmm. greens and cornbread and cranberry sauce so when he introduced me to the greens and the cornbread, uh, the dressing, that, that to me um, became something that we really attached to. But really didn't make a whole lot of turkey. And we since have become vegans, he and I. So um, it's going to be our first Thanksgiving as vegans. And we're just going to lay low. We're going to support a local plant-based restaurant. Uh, in St. Paul for Thanksgiving. And and that's where we're at. And in terms of getting together with our girls, we have two adult daughters, we're just going to do that by zoom. And uh, yeah, it's going to be a time of reflection, a time of relaxing and reading and, and doing a whole lot of relaxing, I guess.
2: A big thing for me and my husband this year is just to to be thankful that we are able to afford to make a big meal for ourselves during a year like this with the pandemic and so many people losing their jobs and and their liveliness and their their comforts, you know that we recognize what we do have.
3: Well, you know, as I mentioned, we're going to do the virtual thing. It's also my birthday on th- uh, this Thursday, but I, I think it's significant because I turned sixty six that's the magic age to retire. And so I, you know, I sent in my official notice. I plan on retiring at the end of the school year in in, in May and June. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. But, you know, for me to be thankful that I'm going to hit 66 when so many of uh, individuals that I grew up with, you know, from North Minneapolis, from from grade school, junior high school, um, high school, college, you know, have passed away. Not necessarily because of COVID, but because of other compounding issues, trauma that we have to deal with as, as people of color and American Indians in this country. And so I, you know, I feel very fortunate and thankful that I'm reaching this age. You know, I'm, I've made it another year despite, despite that we had this lack of leadership for the whole covid pandemic um you know politically using that as a a blame game you know that, that's a heavy trauma and so people i think people rightfully so are are, are might be um you know not quite sure about the vaccine because no protocols. were set. You know what I mean? I mean, with the lack of leadership and with the lack of direction that we've had during this entire thing and now, boom, all of a sudden we have this vaccine. Well, of course, people are going to be leery for that reason, you know, and the 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 trauma that we've had to endure since Biden won the election and the other side has refused to acknowledge that for the first time in our in my history of presidential elections. That is a huge trauma. And and um that's a huge trauma that all of us are dealing with right now.
0: And Don, as usual, as the as 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 the group elder in the mix, you have put the <laughs> mic drop right in the pin of the hard nuance. Look, counter stories is back. And one of the things that we always have to contend with is the fact that when we talk about these compound effects, when we talk about the below-the-line information. There is so much that we don't know about the experiences of communities of color that we'll never be able to do it justice in in one conversation. But that's why we need counter stories. When we talk about counter stories and all of those things, we also have to talk about what is real in our daily lives. When we talk about compound effects, we have to speak truth to the experiences of communities of color so that we can get to a day where we're no longer referred to and looked at as something else. And in order to do that and speak truth to that, we have to speak to the elephant in the room. So if you're hearing us now, you're hearing us in a new format. We have officially left in PR for reasons that we made public, but also so that we could create a space that goes much deeper, right? Um, and because we have so much to talk about.
1: I'll jump in, uh, primarily because I think it, it came to be because of my new role So as folks listen to my introduction, I am now a Deputy Attorney General with the Office of the Attorney General here in Minnesota. And that's a role that I accepted in August of this year, August of 2020. And when I shared that news with the folks at NPR, we were immediately informed that I would not be able to continue as part of the Counter Stories crew because I'm not part of the administration, and we went back and forth, and uh, we resolved that uh, we had a point of uh, different opinions, and we agreed to disagree on that. And my first step was to inform the rest of my colleagues here on Counter Stories that I would not be on, and that I would definitely seek out someone in community to step in in my place. And I was... um, touched beyond measure to hear that each and every one of my Counter Stories colleagues here said, if you're not part of it, uh, we're not going to be a part of this. Um, Let's look for a different venue. And that's exactly what we did. We did part ways with NPR. Uh, Ampers Radio has been incredibly generous and um, eager to get us on the air. Quite honestly, they contacted us immediately after we severed our ties with NPR, we would have been on sooner. We just had to work through some of the legalities and some of the other difficulties and practicalities that are associated with a new venue. Uh, but it, it's it's something that I speak for myself, very excited about and grateful for each and every one of my Counter Stories colleagues here who um, decided that our friendship and our collegiality together and our connectedness was far more important uh, than to walk away from it. So thank you all for all that.
0: And what's great about it is we made this decision um, in order to be in a space to tell our to continue to tell our stories. And as we have patterns we that we fight for and experience, and we have had um, past concerns about how things were going at, at, at NPR, and it just made sense that create producing this independently allowed us for to to tell the story in the way that we want to tell it without um the filter of uh, of another entity and this is something that people of color have had to come to over time over and over again and it is connected to what we've been talking about this whole episode and that is the compounding effects that make what's quote-unquote seems normal in a dominant white society space doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily normal and comes with a whole lot of wrinkles. In communities of color all the way across the board. And I think this is just another example of one of those spaces where independently telling our stories from our perspectives um, is just a better fit and a better fix for what needs to happen. And that's the kind of truth telling that keeps us from being right here in front of us and dealing with things openly and honestly and not being in a space where we feel like or are referred to along the lines of something else i would
2: encourage everyone to read our statement which includes our history of frustrations and successes that we've had um, with minnesota public radio you can read that statement at theothermediagroup.com slash counter please be patient with us as we go through these growing pains because we are going to be bringing you bigger and better things to come We're excited to be working with Ampers to bring you more counter stories online and on air, figuring out which of their 18 different community radio stations throughout Minnesota you'll be hearing us. We are in the process of pulling everything together, including a new website, social media, and all the bells and whistles. For now, please be sure to check out our Facebook page for updates until we get all that going.
0: Whether we're talking about the election, Thanksgiving, COVID responses and vaccines, even producing a podcast by people of color for people of color and everyone else. If we don't speak truth to the experiences of people of color, we'll never live up to who we need to be as a nation. In the words of James Baldwin, not everything that is faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced. I'm Anthony Galloway, Senior Partner at Dendros Group and Executive Director of Arts Us.
1: I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General
2: for the State of Minnesota.
3: I'm Don Eubanks, associate professor at Metropolitan State University and cultural consultant.
2: And I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group.
0: This is Counterstories. This program is a co-production of the Counterstories crew, the Other Media Group, and Amper's Diverse Radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and Black people all across the country representing. No, okay, I'm sorry. Three. <laughs>
1: <laughs> party. <laughs>